Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. I got the rock and roll feeling in my soul. Hello. I'm John J. Thompson, and welcome to another special edition of the True Tunes Podcast. This time, it's a jukebox takeover, as we continue our conversation about enchantment by looking at four albums and artists that had a particularly powerful impact over the years. The True Tunes Jukebox feature gives us a chance to highlight both classic and new music on every episode of the show, but we thought that it would be fun to do a deep dive all music episode that explores the different ways enchantment can manifest itself in the music that moves us. We'll take a look at the hard rock band King's X and their 1989 album Gretchen Goes to Nebraska, Leslie Phillips' 1987 gem The Turning, Johnny Cash's traffic-stopping comeback in the mid-90s, and, as promised in the last episode, a special look at the choir's 1988 game-changer Chase the Kangaroo, including a special recent conversation with Steve Hindelong and Derry Daugherty about that classic album. So, with no further ado, let's make sure that thing's plugged in and get going here. Enchanting music doesn't have to be gentle. When King's X returned with their sophomore LP in 1989, expectations were high. The Texas-based band had wowed critics and those fortunate enough to catch them on stage with their innovative blend of hard rock, funk, psychedelia, and soul, with more than enough inspirational lift to have many raising their hands and singing along like a gospel choir. Their 1988 debut, Out of the Silent Planet, had been a stunner to be sure. And with Gretchen Goes to Nebraska, the band solidified their sound and doubled down on everything that made them special. The groove, the harmonies, the spirituality, and that wall of metal tone were back, bigger and better than ever. Many in the music world were convinced that King's X were the future of hard rock. Three members of King's X, 
vocalist and bassist Doug Pinnock, guitarist and vocalist Ty Tabor, and drummer and backing vocalist Jerry Gaskell were well-seasoned veterans by the time they got their shot at a label deal. They had served as the backing band for other artists, including none other than Phil Keggy, for a time. They had formed their own new wave-influenced modern rock bands and had come close to getting sucked into the fringes of the Christian rock world a time or two. By sticking to their proverbial guns, though, the band found their own unique sound, as well as a major label record deal. In the pre-grunge days of the late 80s, King's X offered a much-needed alternative to the often vapid hair metal scene. Gritty but graceful three-part harmonies, complex yet accessible arrangements, and riffs that dug deep grooves even as they built stacks of melody and harmony denser and richer than anything since the Beatles, Queen, or ELO all combined to glorious effect. Though they never managed anything close to the mainstream breakthrough they deserved, they counted many major rock bands of the era as big-time fans. Members of Soundgarden, Mother Love Bone, Pearl Jam, and Alice in Chains were all at the band's first show in Seattle in 1988. Years later, Pearl Jam bassist Jeff Ament even declared on MTV that King's X invented grunge. Whether that's true or not, there's no doubt that the Texas trio enchanted hard rock fans around the world. Gretchen opened with a half minute of eastern sound and ambience, just enough to get our attention, before ripping into the deep-throated guitar riff and layered vocal stacks of the blistering Out of the Silent Planet, which was, interestingly, the title of their debut album released the previous year and the title of one of C.S. Lewis's celebrated science fiction books. It helped to connect this album to what had come before it. Atmospheric moments like that also placed the band somewhere in the realm of progressive rock bands like Rush or Pink Floyd. second track, Over My Head, which did manage to get some radio and MTV play, balanced Hendrix-like guitar pyrotechnics with the feel of a feverish gospel church service as Pinnock recalled memories of his deeply religious upbringing. Quoting from Sister Rosetta Tharp's classic Up Above My Head, the song obliterated the lines between gospel and rock and roll, reuniting these cousins at what feels like a long overdue family jam session. Oh. 
The band's producer, manager, and by all accounts, fourth member and taskmaster Sam Taylor used the studio very effectively. His use of compression in particular brought King's X a uniquely dense sound that could be both heavy and melodic at the same time. Their use of drop tunings, Doug's 12-string bass, and custom effects made their mere three-piece band sound like a veritable hard rock orchestra. To see King's X on stage in the late 80s and early 90s was absolutely breathtaking. They consumed the space with sound, and Pinnock, with his lanky muscular frame and towering black mohawk, was an amazing frontman. In fact, everything about King's X was enchanting, though none of us would have used that word at the time. was also not afraid to slow things down. But unlike the power ballads so many hair bands interjected into their albums or shows with songs like The Difference, King's X did more than just try to connect with the girls in the house. Leaning even deeper into the same melodic and harmonic elements that defined all of their songs, they created landscapes and told confessional stories that never devolved into self-serving romantic drivel. Truth, King's X's first three, or even four albums, stand up almost as a unified work. The recent Atlantic Albums collection makes that point. But Gretchen Goes to Nebraska is an excellent point of entry for newcomers. Though they never did become the future of rock, King's X music is as listenable today as it was when it first dropped over three decades ago. Why they never broke bigger is anyone's guess. Maybe they were just too melodic, too inspirational, too musically well executed to keep up with the lackadaisical, who cares grunge rock era that they influenced so deeply. All I can say is that there's never been a hard rock band like King's X.
enchanting music doesn't have to be perfect. Sometimes, singing about and leaning into imperfections is what makes it perfect. In the early 80s, singer and songwriter Leslie Phillips, who has been known creatively as Sam Phillips since about 1988, spent several years being shaped, framed, and positioned as Christian music's answer to Pat Benatar or Cyndi Lauper. Now, as great as those women are, Phillips is actually an artist, not an impersonator. Though the CCM records she had been making were much better than most of what was coming out in that world, when she finally gave up trying to be the Christian answer to anything and simply told the world who she was, insecurities, doubts, frustrations, and all, one of the results was her stunning 1987 album, The Turning. Another result was that she left the confines of Christian music behind. Yes, this album was produced by T-Bone Burnett. And yes, I am as big a T-Bone fan as you're going to find. And yes, Phillips and Burnett were later married for a time. But it burns me to hear people reduce this project to a reflection of Burnett's prowess behind the board. At some point over the last 30 years, but I honestly can't remember when, I got to hear some of the demos that Phillips recorded of these songs. And even without the cool loops and guitar effects, the underlying songs are just so good. But it's true, Burnett did an excellent job framing each song with just enough polish, but never too much. Though highly literate and confessional, Phillips' songs refused to settle into the neo-folk style that became so popular a couple of years later. This is intelligent, personal, adult pop music that is, at its core, deeply encouraging to real people who are coming to the end of their rope. Phillips was already there and was singing about it. Take the title track. The alternative rock-oriented production elements and ear candy are cool indeed, almost hypnotic on headphones. Between the percussion loops and scratched guitar strings and the tripped-out backing vocal stacks, the whole thing has a Peter Gabriel spirit about it, as Phillips contemplates the devolution of soul and prays that the spiritual entropy won't consume her. Oh, 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 
That song is followed immediately by the much perkier Liberame, a clever way to say free me in Latin, which, like several other cuts here, manages to be both upbeat and contemplative at the same time. Carry You moves back into a trippier space, making room for an awesome baritone guitar solo that plays with the spacious track to make the listener feel that they may have been transported to a bleak western ghost town. The message though, the water is rising, the night is coming, but I will carry you. When I was 17 and heard this song for the first time, I didn't know if she was singing this on behalf of God or to a friend, but I knew that either way, I needed to be carried, and I needed to carry, and that when I carried others, I was being Jesus to them. That was how Libera happened. When the night is too black, when the night is too black, I will carry you, I will carry you. When the water's too high, when the water's too high, I will carry you, I will carry you. She picks up the pace again, actually rocking respectably on Beating Heart. She practically screams while laughing about the choking dysfunction that could be about any bad relationship or the way she was being received by the church as an artist. Then we get to Down, the song that achingly opens up about the current that was running underneath so many of the songs on this album. Down comes my religion, like leaves on winter trees. Down you come to me with your love on hands and knees. Cut to the heart, I am opened up like a wound. Shattered convictions I thought were reflecting you. With your love on hands and knees 
It would be easy to see this kind of song as the verse of someone giving up on their faith. But the thing about leaves that fall from winter trees is that they grow back. The next track, Answers Don't Come Easy, is the kind of song that I always wished Christian music celebrated more. As Phillips has so artfully explored pain, loss, confusion, questions, she bravely prefers sitting without answers to settling for simple ones. Turning shook me as a kid. It challenged me. It unsettled me in the best way. It left me determined to ask hard questions and wait for real answers. It convicted me about the childish things that I needed to put away and inspired me to watch for a beautiful hand at work around me, even in the painful stuff. Leslie Phillips bowed out of CCM music with the release of this record. She signed a major label deal and emerged as Sam Phillips a year later. Her work since then has moved from strength to strength, including 2018's amazing World on Sticks album, which you will continue to hear cuts from on our weekly Spotify mix. She is one of the strongest songwriters working today. And in 1987, she enchanted me with The Turning. take a quick break but we'll be right back we're back with this cold storage episode from the true tunes podcast hello i'm johnny cash i hear the train a coming it's rolling around the bend and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom prison. Enchanting music doesn't have to be complicated. Though his name and legacy were etched in the firmament of American music forever, in the early 90s it had been a long, long time since Johnny Cash had released critically acclaimed or commercially successful music, not to mention music that he was actually proud of. He was still active as a touring artist, often playing shows by himself or with a small ensemble, and keeping audiences enthralled with his stories and songs, but the material was from the distant past. That all changed when Rick Rubin, best known at that time as the producer of the Beastie Boys, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and LL Cool J, saw Cash perform at Bob Dylan's 30th anniversary concert in 1992. 
Where most in the industry saw a washed-up legend, Ruben saw an artist fighting to get out from under his own shadow. He approached Cash with a vision, a desire to produce an album that would give the artist an unprecedented amount of creative control, would focus on his voice and his songs, and would be released on Ruben's insurgent American Recordings label, formerly known as Deaf American. Cash was reluctant at first, but after a few meetings and listening to some music together, he agreed. The results were life-changing for Johnny, for Ruben, for me, and for millions of others. Why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the blessings I've known? Why me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth love from you and the kindness you've shown? Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus, I know what I am. Now that I know that I've needed you, so help me, Jesus, my soul's in your hand. The first collection of songs, dubbed simply American Recordings, was recorded mostly at Cash's Tennessee home and Ruben's Los Angeles home studio, with two songs cut live at Johnny Depp's Viper Room nightclub in Hollywood. For the most part, it's just Johnny and his guitar, recorded close-up, intimate, analog. Two of the songs were from Johnny's deep catalog, Bury Me Not, and one of my all-time favorites, the album's opening track, a disturbing murder ballad that Cash had originally recorded some 30 years earlier with his trademark flat-picking shuffle. Under Rubin's tutelage, it was re-envisioned as a stripped-down, haunted lament. Delia's Gone told us everything we needed to know about this new, old Johnny Cash. Delia, oh Delia, Delia all my life If I hadn't shot poor Delia I'd have had her for my wife Delia's gone One more round Delia's gone I went up to Memphis And I met Delia there Found her in her parlor And I tied her to her chair Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. Though Cash was aging, in 1994 his voice was still in great form. As these sparsely recorded songs played, and I looked at this sepia-toned gothic cover photo, with Cash sporting a full-length Cossack like a prairie preacher, flanked by a white dog and a black dog, Having recently relapsed into addiction, he explained that each of us has two dogs in us and the one that wins will be the one we feed, I was completely captivated. I had been a fan of Johnny Cash since I was a kid, mind you, but this album, every single song, was like a bell going off. It was something I could set both my musical and spiritual compass to. There's a golden moon that shines up through the mist 
And I know that your name Can be on that list There's no I for an eye There's no tooth for a tooth I saw Judas Iscariot Carrying John Wilkes Booth He was down there by the train 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 He was down there where the train goes slow Reuben conscripted a couple of unlikely outside writers to contribute new songs for this set. Glenn Danzig, of all people, offered up the super dark folk ballad 13, and Tom Waits penned the gospel song Down There by the Train. Cash and Reuben also chose a couple of interesting cover songs, including Nick Lowe's darkly confessional The Beast in Me, and Loudon Wainwright's hilarious The Man Who Couldn't Cry. He got sent off to jail. You guessed it, no bail. Oh, but still not a dribble or drop. In jail he was beaten, bullied and buggered, and made to make license plates. Water and bread was all he was fed. Not once did a tear stain his face. Doctors were called in, scientists too. Theologians were last and practically least. They all agreed, sure enough, this is no cream puff. Oh, but in fact, an insensitive beast. It all reminded me of the way Cash had embraced the counterculture and younger artists when he had his TV show in the early 70s, and how he had always had a heart tuned toward the outsiders and marginalized. Reuben, though not necessarily sharing the same theological perspectives as Cash, was able to kindle those flames. The result of this restrained, focused, and profoundly vulnerable album was a late career renaissance for Cash that no one could have imagined. Instead of framing him as a legend in amber, American recordings captured Cash as a living, breathing, vital artist with stories left to tell, songs left to sing, and something the young, alternative music generation seemed to crave more than anything, unvarnished authenticity. The beast in me is caged by frail and fragile bars Restless by day and by night Rants and rages at the stars God help the beast in me So authentic was Cash, in fact, so enchanting and winsome, that I have often said he moved way past relevance and into transcendence. 
He parked his gospel songs right next to the songs about addiction and murder and sex and ambition and everything else, right where they belonged. Millions of people tuned back in to Johnny's music or dropped a needle into his grooves for the first time. He would go on to release six more albums with Rubin and would spend the last decade of his life back at the forefront of American music where he belonged. From his hands it came down, from his side it came down, from the feet it came down and ran to the ground. And a small inner voice said, you do have a choice. The vine engrafted me, and I clung to the tree. And the blood gave life to the branches of the tree. And the blood was the price that set the captives free. And with the numbers that came through the fire and the flood, I clung to the tree and was redeemed by the blood. From his hands it came down, from his side it came down, from the feet it came down and ran to the ground. is often unplanned for, but is rarely unprepared for. For many of us, everything changed when the choir released Chase the Kangaroo in 1988. When I think about the idea of musical enchantment, I think about Sgt. Pepper by The Beatles, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, American Recordings by Johnny Cash, U2's The Joshua Tree, and a handful of other albums. Right up there in that firmament, for me anyway, is the fourth release by an obscure California band that never received the recognition they deserved in the 80s and in many ways still hasn't. By 1988, the choir had already become well-known in the tiny but passionate world of alternative Christian music. They had released two full-length albums and an EP on three different labels before this. They had toured with Steve Taylor and seemed poised to become the growing Christian music world's answer to alternative bands like Echo and the Bunnymen, The Psychedelic Furs, and U2. As long as they sang songs that the church could buy, they were going to be huge. Chase the Kangaroo killed all that. Thank God. Akin in many ways to the musical, ethical, and even theological approach of U2, 
it would have made sense for the choir to emulate that band's stadium-filling sound, but they did not. They crafted something with Kangaroo that was truly unique. Musically, the songs balance ambience and melodic hooks in ways that never become gratuitous or indulgent. From the opening pulse of Consider, it's clear that Chase the Kangaroo contained more of an adventure than just about any album that came out that year. Children of Time came next on the record, with more of those chimey guitars and that generous use of space. But something about the lyric told us that there was another level to all of this near psychedelia. Drummer Steve Hindelong, who served as the main lyricist, had come into his own as a poet and was unafraid to embrace oblique imagery, emotional ideas, and unanswered questions. Quote, with a triple cheer at the scene of the crime, the devil endorses the children of time. What? song Clouds matched the poetic imagery with a musical experience that was atmospheric, impressionistic, and took the idea of a musical breakdown quite literally. Even the title track, with its playful metaphor for self-examination, managed to be both humorous and sad at the same time, living out what another song on the set, Sad Face, had reminded us from Ecclesiastes 7.3. A sad face is good for the heart, and somehow this band seemed to know that the path they had chosen, one of artistic integrity, spiritual honesty, and community over commerce, was more likely to lead to treasures that this world does not value than the kind that would ever land them on the cover of Rolling Stone.
I recently got a chance to ask Stephen Derry about Chase the Kangaroo, looking back on it some 32 years later. Here's a bit of that conversation. With Chase the Kangaroo, there was such a shift there into stuff that was both sonically and lyrically invitational into an experience and less didactic, less narrative. And so when talking about things being enchanting where you just here, come into this room and let's just have this experience. I'm not going to tell you what to think, but I am going to kind of inspire you what to feel. I'm going to decorate the room in a certain way. Mm -hmm. That record to me feels that had that effect on me. What was going through your hearts and minds as you approached that record? What allowed you, what encouraged you to take those turns with Chase the Kangaroo in particular, sonically, musically, and lyrically, uh, to do something that was such a left turn, not just for you, but for our whole community? Well, that was the first one that we really produced ourselves. I mean, that was when we really kind of took control of things. And we had opened our studio, um, and we had gone through, you know, the first record with a the producer, then the EP we kind of did on our own, but didn't really turn out exactly the way we wanted it. And then with Charlie, then this one we just kind of said, you know what, we we know enough now about what we're doing that we want to just try this and try and take control over it. It was very experimental and it took a long time, way longer than any other records, yep. many months. Um, we were just trying to learn how to write together and create still together, Derry and me. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't always agree with everything, and and the record label still thought we were going to have a producer. They thought we were doing demos. They thought we were doing demos. And we did the whole record basically as a demo. Mm -hmm. And then I think we almost we re-recorded a lot of it. We just we kept, did. We were trying to get it right, and we were very. I think we were just trying to make a record that we liked. We did. We were trusting yeah. our own instincts, and we decided we're we're we, the record label didn't come around much. Um, and then in the end, we said, the record's done. And they, they said, no, wait a minute, we thought these were demos. And we said, no, this is our record. Yeah, um, and, and we were out of money, too. We used the budget. Yeah, way, and we took, we, it was the first time we could take our time. Because we weren't, you, you know, before you go in the studio and you've got your budget and it goes to everybody but you. I you, will say you know. that's a big luxury that we had because Derry was an engineer and he had a studio. So for me, I'm so grateful because... Um, and that's how I ultimately I became a producer and stuff but I owe that to the fact that Derry had this studio always where we could work unlimited time mm -hmm. and so real luxury almost no bands have that no we could work day and night and you know and um, it wasn't fair to Derry you know but <laughs> well, no, no but it was a unique situation though because we could just do whatever we wanted and and during that period of time especially the studio was a real creative hub for a lot of people, like we would come in and re record during the day up into the evening, and then Gene Eugene would come in and record all night, or somebody else would come in and record right. all night. Ten songs by Adam again was recorded simultaneously mm -hmm. with um, with Chase the Kangaroo. Mm -hmm. He worked by night, and we worked by day, and that's why Gene ended up engineering for us, mm -hmm. and I ended up playing, you know, percussion and writing some lyrics with Gene, and we just overlapped into each other's world. Yeah. Um, We'd be coming in in the morning, and then Gene would be wrapping it up. Yeah, and um, yeah. and Ojo Taylor was around. He was doing stuff there. The his, their thing was going with not undercover, but they were doing. He was producing like level heads. He did that, that and some other stuff. And it was a it was an interesting time. I mean, it was a lot of stuff going on, and uh, 
but that but it allowed us to kind of learn how to do what we did because we didn't we weren't on the clock. But definitely lyrically, I'd given. I wasn't trying to get any Christian radio or anything like that. Just trying to get in touch with what what was true, what was honest, what was what was real, uh, and that was definitely when we, where we found our way. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know it was. I mean. I mean, things like clouds, you know, that whole thing where, where it breaks down for a whole minute of just wash and crazy, mm-hmm. you know. I don't know where that came from. I mean, that was, Derry was always into the ambient thing way before it became a genre, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we would we would just, it was great because, you, you know, you had 24-track analog tape and you turn the tape over and try and figure out how to play something backwards that was going to sound right when it came out the other way, you know, or something. I mean, it, it was a lot of time spent doing that stuff right and it, and also just a lot of pressure like our lives are on the line you know and you're you're in your mid-20s and and uh you just don't think if if you don't succeed or, or whatever succeed means i don't even know what succeed means but to keep getting to do it mm-hmm. to, to be able to do it good enough that you get to keep doing it and i think that we were really i know i was completely shocked and amazed that people responded to it like they did mm-hmm. and just the critical re- reception was so good and and, mm-hmm. and we felt i think Derry and i at the end of it cuz we there was a lot of creative tension in the process right cuz we like different things you know and um, but then in the end when we we definitely succeeded creatively oh yeah no and doubt. so we felt look what we did look what we did and then i from then on i feel we had confidence um, as a creative team, mm-hmm. from that point on, yeah, uh, and no looking back. No, there was no looking back, at, and we weren't going to have any other producers from then on or anything. We yeah. knew what we wanted to do. And Gene, you know, Gene engineered like even with the song "Consider," we had done it one version of it, and then Gene was the one that said, "Man, let me track this." He says, "Let's do this again. Let me track it." Mm-hmm. And tents, we put moved your drums out of that little room, the little ISO booth into the big room. Uh huh. And Tim was in there playing, you know, and and Gene just like did just did it. He, he wrapped that mic around my neck. Mm-hmm. I had a mic hanging from my chest. That mm-hmm. square. What was that thing up? It was a pi, uh, PZM, like a square it. little thing. He wrapped the cord around my neck and hung it on my chest. Mm-hmm. And that was the overhead that gave it that weird ambient presence. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like really great because it was drummer perspective. Right. It sounded like what I'm hearing. Right. You know, I, I don't know why we never did that again. Well, and you can hear you can hear <laughs> yeah. it if you listen in, in headphones too. You can hear sometimes when you're doing your fills or whatever because you're leaning a certain way and you hear it kind of phase over this way a little bit and then phase the back. The phasing, over, right? That you know, and Children of Time, those two tracks. Those two were, tracks with that thing on my ch- and it was just. Gene was a real uh, creative dude. No, he was no doubt about it. Uh, and yeah. great ears. He just had ears. Yeah, he, he did. Could, he just. But yeah, he he stepped in on a couple of occasions, and then Steve Griffith came down, and um, mm-hmm. he he mixed mixed some of it. He no, he mixed Circle Slide, but but he did. Well, he didn't. He do. Uh, he played bass on he, Clouds, right? He played. Ba- he engineered for because our engineer went to Japan. Remember? That's right. Dave went on tour with Donna Summer, Dave right. Backworth. So we needed somebody. So Steve came down and mm-hmm. he engineered some, and he sang some harmony and played some bass. He played bass on Clouds for sure. Yeah, but we liked him so much, we hit it off with him. Mm-hmm. So that we he, we ended up bringing him into mixed circle slide. That's right. That's what it was. Right. I think Mark Hurd mixed a lot of it. Mark Hurd oh, mixed Chase some of Kangaroo. it. I mixed a couple things. You on mixed it. some of it. Gene mixed some of it. Gene mixed some of it. You three guys mi- mixed. Yeah, that's right. Different songs. Yep. What I'm interpreting or calling enchantment is a result of working through 
friction instead mm -hmm. of avoiding it. Mm -hmm. Not going in with uh, upfront expectations for certain kinds of commercial market success that you don't believe in anyway, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. as far as what you were talking about with radio. And then a community of people that are also bought into what you're doing and, and working with that community of people right. and just trusting that flow and get, and then the advantage of time and resources and space that, mm -hmm. that all of those things kind of conspired together to right. create that moment. If, and so if, when you're talking to young artists, I would, am I going too far to say, if they're just starting out like you were at the very beginning, when you go back and listen to the track on What's Shaken or something, it's like that band needs to do some things for about five, six years mm -hmm. to put themselves in the position so that down the road they have a producer and an engineer and songs and friends and space and time and some wisdom, mm -hmm. right? They can't expect right out of the gate to do that. If we would have gone in to do Chase Kangaroo with a producer, we would not have made that record. It would have been a completely different record. Absolutely, that's and, absolutely right. And I don't think it would have been nearly as good, no matter who was producing it. I don't think it would have been as good. We had to be able to kind of go in and flop around and flail and fail and succeed. And, you had to chase you know, it. Had to chase <laughs> yeah. it. You know, and and then and and we were fortunate too because our A and R guy Tom Willett was he was behind us a hundred percent. And he just kind of left us alone. Even though he thought we were going to still get a producer, he just kind of left us alone and didn't, and didn't put a bunch of pressure on us for anything. And I will say that we had really good... You know, we make the record company the bad guys sometimes. The Christian record label, blah, 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 you know. Uh, and the industry is what it was. But we had really good people. We had great relationships with... I mean, oh, so absolutely. many people, our managers. Yeah. And our, I mean, we had this guy, a new radio guy named Chris Hauser. Yeah, uh, who yeah, was at Murr, and he was such a fan, and he was so determined to get that song Clouds on radio. Mm -hmm. It was a six-minute, crazy, <laughs> slow yeah. song. He believed in it so much. Of mm -hmm. um, course, he's learned a lot since. He's one of the, the yeah. you know the main radio pro, you know uh, promoter. promoter guys yeah. uh, out there, and just he's just a wonderful guy. Love him so much, and he he had a heart for our music, mm -hmm. and. Uh, no, we, they couldn't sell us, man. They tried. There was we couldn't be sold it to that market. Lack of trying. But you found, but you trying. did find your people. We found our people. We found our people. Yeah, yeah we did. We well, did. we're still we still get to do it. Right. Yeah. We just did a Kickstarter, and they came and supported us, and mm -hmm. well enough that we get to make another record. And so we don't have bitter feelings. No, not at all. Uh, to our audience or to the, the the people that tried to help us succeed along the way. No. Clouds around about you. Clouds around about you, clouds around about you, shadows veil your eyes, shadows veil your eyes. The choir may never have achieved the commercial success they deserved, and the bigger tragedy may be that the faith community's ambivalence towards art like theirs has deprived a generation or two of what could have been some really wonderful and inspiring creative reference points. I know that for me, Chase the Kangaroo was one of those rare musical experiences that not only gave me something to listen to, it pulled me into a story. It has actually made me part of a family as I grabbed my shovel and started digging alongside Steve, Derry, Dan, 
and so many others like them for something good, true, and beautiful. No dreams will ever be shattered by dark or dreary days. The light will vanish all the doubt. Just travel up the road till you reach the land of gold. There you'll see the God behind the cloud. That's going to do it for this special edition jukebox takeover of the True Tunes podcast. Thanks to Bruce A. Brown for his fantastic production and editing work, and to you for listening and for spreading the word. The contents of this podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten material. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. The program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. If you appreciate the True Tunes podcast, please tell your friends about it. Please post about us. Please keep in touch. Until next time, this is JJT saying, get those quarters ready. The jukebox is always waiting for you. <laughs>